Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews uh, chapter 11. We're actually going to be look, beginning with verse 32 because even though our text today is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, it starts out with therefore. And we know that if there's a therefore, then it refers back to what comes before it. And, and that's the entire chapter of uh, uh, 11. But we don't have time to read all that this morning. So we'll just read from verses 32 and following to give us a context. So let us listen carefully to God's word. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, uh, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They were about uh, in skins. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I look forward uh, to looking at this text this morning. I'm, I'm deeply indebted to Dale Van Dyke for many of his insights in, in, into this passage. Uh, but before we go to this uh, text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much uh, for your word. And uh, we just... I just don't know, God, that we really truly can grasp and imagine what a privilege it is for the very God who made us and created us and saved us uh, to speak to us this morning. And so, Lord, let us not come just to hear a man preach a sermon, but let us come, O oh God, to hear the Word of God. And so we pray for the work of Your Holy Spirit in our lives and, and in our hearts. And God, that You would do Your work in such a way that would glorify Your name. We thank You and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but have you ever gone to the doctor with symptoms that had concerned you uh, and you went with some fear and trepidation? You knew that there was something wrong, but possibly something seriously wrong. And especially if you're one of those people that you like to do a lot of research on the internet before you go to the doctor. You know, you, you start out thinking you have a cold, but after you do some research, you realize that, no, it's probably COVID. And then before you're done, you're thinking, oh no, I'm gonna die of cancer. You know, and so you sort of have worked yourself up. Well, you go to the doctor and you meet with that doctor 
And, and you find out that what is wrong is actually just normal. You know, you're not dying of cancer. It's just, it's just normal. Actually, you have the flu. And the doctor tells you it's going to take about two to three weeks to run its course, drink lots of liquids, get lots of sleep. Life's going to be miserable for the next several weeks, but you know what? You're going to get through this. And uh, it's, it's just encouraging to know that what you're going through is normal. It actually gives you a perspective that helps you to endure that which you're going through. Well, it, it could be like that for the Christian life as well. You know, we can easily assume that when things are hard, when there are trials that come into our lives that we didn't really count upon, when we're feeling a sense of, of weakness in our life and inadequacy, uh, we can assume that, that something is wrong and that there's something that needs to be fixed. Someone needs to be able to make this better. Or, or you may think, I, I, I've taken a wrong turn and I just need to get back on the right track because surely this cannot be God's plan for my life. It's too painful. It's too difficult. This is not what the Christian life surely is, is all about. But the reality is, though, that the pain and the heartache and the difficulty that we go through as Christians is normal. And sometimes it's helpful to know that. And, and, and that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to this early church. You know, you think about these Jewish Christians, and, and they must have felt that, that something was wrong. I mean, they were Jewish Christians who had now come to have faith in the Jewish Messiah, and they had been taught since the time that they were little that when the Messiah comes, that everything would be made right. Israel would be uh, reestablished in all of its glory, maybe much like the glory days of, of King David. And not only that, but when the Messiah come, came, there would be shalom, there would be peace. So they needed to pray for the Messiah. And so you can just imagine how with great anticipation these Jewish believers came to faith in Jesus Christ. But things didn't work out quite the way they expected. The life that they were living did not feel very messianic. Uh, their homes were being plundered. They were being persecuted. Some were being put in jail. And there was very little shalom or peace about all of this. And so some were having second thoughts about following Jesus. And, and some, I think, uh, the, the indication you get is, is that they were wanting to go back to the Jewish community. Maybe they would follow Jesus, but they would follow Jesus their way, maybe rather than the way that was proclaimed to them and the gospel. And so the writer is trying to remind these Christians that the Christian life is really a pilgrimage, guys. He, he, he wanted them to realize, and he seeks for us to realize as well, what the Christian life is actually like. How it is that we should think about the Christian life. And so this morning, I, I want us to look at that in these first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. And the first thing I want us to see is, is that the Christian life is a race to run. It is a race to be run. Okay, he says in verse 1, Let us run the race that's set before us. Now, if you read all of verse 1, it seems like the writer is giving us a multitude of commands here. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and, and the sin. So there's that sense of the command to lay aside. Let us run with endurance the race. And then he also says, looking or fixing our eyes, as some translations say, to Jesus. 
And so it seems like there's, there's all these different commands. But the reality is there's only, in the Greek, one command. And that is the command to run the race. The other two are participles or prepositions which really serve to tell us how we are to run the race. But the focus here is the idea of running the race. And so the author says, let us. Notice that, that corporate aspect of running the race. It's something that every Christian does, including the writer himself. Uh, he says we're in a race, not so much a, a, a sprint as much as a marathon. I mean, you, you notice he says run with what? Endurance. Something that's, that's uh, taking some time. In the race, there's, there's a goal to be reached, obviously. There's a finish line. We, we know that. We've watched enough of the Olympics or, or going to high school track meets or whatever that we know that there's always the goal. So the runner must block out all of the different distractions and, and focus on the goal at hand, that, that finish line. And so it is with every Christian. We're on a journey. We're, we're heading somewhere intentionally. That's what our lives are, are all about. We are a race headed toward a heavenly city and we must not be distracted from the goal now we need to be reminded of this brothers and sisters because we can be tempted particularly as affluent um, American Christians to think that life is about the American dream it's about having a home and maybe card maybe family a good job you know, uh, a, a certain level of, of comfort. And, and, and we sort of look at people around us and, and maybe look at our parents and the way we were raised and, and think that that's really what life is about. And, and also, along with that kind of thinking, uh, we ought to expect as American Christians that there's a solution to our problems. There, there are fixes to what's wrong in our life. You may have heard some people say, maybe jokingly, but I, I've known people that they seem pretty serious about this, that there has to be an app for every problem, for every issue. You know, if, if you got something wrong in your life, surely there's an app you can download that's going to help you and fix that. Now, we may joke about that, but we do oftentimes think that if there is something wrong in my life, I ought to be able to get beyond this. And, and we have been conditioned by advertisements that we've been exposed to but to believe uh, that there ought to be some way to live life that is for the most part pain-free because surely there's a product out there that can that can help us with that well you see one of the devil's most effective schemes is to make you assume that this life what we do here on this earth is what life is all about Satan wants you to forget the race and he wants you instead to focus on the scenery. He wants you to forget that we're on a pilgrim, we're on a journey. He wants us to focus our lives on what is going on on this earth and not to think about eternity and the things that, that are yet to come. Because if you realize that there is a race to run and you run and you live your life that way with, with that focus in mind, with that end goal in mind, each and every day as you get up, it begins to radically change your life. It begins to change your priorities. It begins to, to change your attitudes and your decisions because it's not about all of this, but it's about where we're heading and the focus. And so the writer seems to be calling to mind uh, the scene of an Olympic race. And, you know, of course, you have the arena with the spectators and, and the runners that are down on the track. 
And, and one of the things that we know about Olympic runners or athletes is, is that they are dedicated to their sport. I mean, their sport dictates everything to them. The amount of sleep they get, the, the, what they eat, uh, what they do with their bodies, everything. Everything in the athlete's life is brought in line with the fact that he's an Olympic runner. And it's the same way with a Christian. That we are running a race, and so everything that we're about is that race. It, it, it is that life. And, and this is what the writer here is, is striving to remind us, that there is a race to run, a life to be lived, that has been set before us by the hand of God Himself. Now, our lives may not look exactly the same. I mean, and we know that. Uh, just by comparing ourselves with each other. The, where God puts us, there may be similarities, but there also may be differences in, in where He's taking us. And so let me just ask us, as we, we think about this, honestly, in this past week, have there been any thoughts in your mind about the fact that you're running a race? Have you thought about life that way? Have you, have you made any decisions in this past week with your time or, or your money or or your relationships where you consciously thought to yourself, I'm in a race, moving towards an eternal city, and that reality needs to define the way that I live my life that God has given to me. Well, as we think about that race, uh, what does he tell us? What does the author tell us? What does God tell us about that race, that, that life? Well, first of all, he tells us that it's a race of endurance. In verse... Uh, verse 1. Uh, the word translated race actually is agone, referring to amongst other things the, the struggle or the conflict that an athlete has. Um, we get the word agony or agonizing. Uh, the race is, is a struggle. It, it is a battle. It's something you work for. It's something you exert your energy in. That doesn't mean that we do it by works. Somehow we get our salvation by works. But there there is that effort. It's a race of endurance. Uh, we read in verse 1, therefore let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So it isn't a sprint. It is a, it is a marathon. And so the writer tells us that we must have that endurance all the way to the end. Now, marathons are notoriously difficult, are they not? Now, I've, I've, I, I know that second hand. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I've never run a marathon, and I really doubt at my age I ever will run a marathon. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've seen enough of those and I've talked to enough runners who have done that kind of stuff that when they run on a marathon, they expect to sweat. They expect there to be aches in their body. They expect to have hard breathing. They expect to have blisters. Hopefully not, but if they do, they, they're not surprised by it. Even uh, shin splints and, and things like that that are very common to, to runners. And even though that's the case, when, when these runners experience these things in their lives, they're not surprised. Uh, there's not a, a sense in which they're grumbling or complaining, nor are they confused by these kind of circumstances because they know that that's just part of being a runner. And that's the sense in which the author of Hebrews wants to portray the Christian life. When you recognize that it's a, a long race to run, all of a sudden you now have categories, brothers and sisters, to understand weakness. You have... Uh, categories to understand pain and misery and heartache and things that are hard that you might not expect to happen if this world were your home. You begin to say, oh, I understand that. And so when something happens in our life that just sort of takes us by surprise and we're totally shocked and we're going, Lord, 
you know, we're, we're not going, God, what's going on? We're going, okay, the Lord is at work. I need to look and I need to trust in Him. Well, this being true, it, it, it makes you wonder how many of our perceptions of the Christian life is informed maybe more by the world than by the gospel, than, than maybe even the scriptures. And, and for some, you may have come to faith in Christ through the church and you heard the message, and the message was more, come to Jesus, believe in Him, and He'll make your life great. But the reality is, is as we see, that's not, that's not true in some regards. I mean, your life is great. To have a relationship with God, even amidst all the pain and the suffering and the difficult, is absolutely wonderful and it is glorious. But it doesn't come without its pain because that's one of the tools that the Lord uses to draw our hearts ever closer to Him. So it's a race of endurance, but it's also a race that's unhindered as well. If you look at verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Uh, Alistair Begg, I, 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 love, I love him as a, as a preacher, uh, he tells a story of going on a mission trip to Africa, and, and he's there at the airport in Africa, and he sees all these uh, uh, single-engine and twin-engine planes, and so he walks up to him and he looks inside, expecting to see these really gorgeous planes, and instead he notices that all the planes have been stripped. That, that the nice leather seats have been removed and all the wooden covering of the instrument panels has been taken out. And, and in fact, he says, the entire plane was removed of everything but the very essentials needed to keep the airplane in the air. And the reason why the missionary pilots did this is because they wanted to be able to get as much food, as many Bibles and everything necessary so that they could fly those things into people that needed those things. Because the focus was not to have a fancy plane. And so they sort of stripped themselves of all those things that might keep them from that task. Well, it's the same way the author writes that we must lighten our load in one sense as Christians. In the ancient athletic games, the runners uh, trained to make their bodies as lean as possible. And, uh, you know, they every pound counted. And so they would seek to, to get into good shape. And any extra weight that might slow them down, they would want to get rid of that. And so, uh, kids, this is really true. Uh, the ancient runners actually would take off all their clothes when they ran, and they would run naked just because it was that much less weight. It would then not hinder them. Well, as, uh, even as we run our race, we must also discard everything that slows us down. And so the author tells us First of all, to lay aside our weight, to throw it off. Throw off those, some translations may say, encumbrances or, or, or those things that hinder, might be what other translations say. But the, the scripture doesn't tell us specifically what these weights are, but the writer wants us to see that there are things that will hinder our Christian life, that will keep us from running the race. And we need to get rid of these things in our lives. We need to put them aside because they slow us down. Now they could be good things or they could be bad things. I think about uh, Luke chapter 21 verse 34. Uh, Luke, uh, Jesus is saying, he says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down. Here's that sense of being weighed down, having that weight that, that slows you down. So uh, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, that is with carousing or loose life and drunkenness. Those are bad things, you know. 
Get rid of those things. But he also says, and cares of this life. Now those are good things. They can be good things at least. I mean, think about the cares of the life. Your health, your employment, um, uh, the things you have and keeping those things up. Your family. Those are all good things and things that, that can help us. In, in Mark 4.19, where Jesus tells the parable of the seed and the sower, you know, he says that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word of God that was sown. And so the cares of the world can be good, but, but they also can, can choke out the word. They can cause us not to hear. And we oftentimes think of the uh, cares of the world as just a normal part of living life. And so oftentimes we're very busy with the cares of life. You know, but Jesus says that the cares of this world could weigh us down and keep us from running the race. So brothers and sisters, I think we need to ask ourselves this morning, as you live life, fundamentally, what are you living for? Maybe another way to ask that is, what is it that you're wanting to get out of life? Are you a consumer and gathering material things? Are, are you primarily about work and, and the drive for significance? Uh, do you, are you really seeking respect from other people? And so that's why you work so hard and try to excel at your job? Or, or maybe you're a person sort of meandering through life and you're just sort of gathering experiences, entertainments, pleasure. You're just wanting to enjoy this life all, all you can. What are you about fundamentally? Well, if the answer is, is that you're about living the American dream, as we said, with the houses and the cars and the family and, and just sort of this, this sense of well-being in your home, that, then you probably don't understand who you are as a Christian. Because there's so much more to the Christian life than that. You don't understand the race that you are to run. Now, don't get me wrong, God has made us stewards of the things that, that we've been entrusted with, and He has created us to enjoy the things that we have upon this earth. And, and am I suggesting that you not take care of your family, or you not... Uh, care for your property or, or you just say to heck with your health no I'm not saying those things but these things are not what we are about and so we need to take those things in our lives whether it be television or books or music or, or family or occupations or hobbies or maybe it's recreation and sports entertainment friends and we need to realize that these things can serve to hinder our endurance in the race and so great spiritual discernment is needed in these areas to lay aside those things that are weighing us down and keeping us from running the race and so we're learning to set aside the cares that weigh us down so that we can run the race but he also says that we need to lay aside sins as well uh, it's it's far more serious I mean sins is far more serious than then the hindrance of weights, although both need to be laid aside, you know, hindrances weigh us down, but sins, as it says here in the text, entangles our feet and trips us up. It causes us to stumble. Now, what is the sin that he's talking about? A lot of people will take this to mean just sort of a, a general sense of sin. All sin. You need to lay aside all sin. It, it is, maybe uh, you've heard some 
people teach that it is our personal besetting sin. You know, there's that sin that always seems to trip us up that we never seem to be able to resist. That's what he's referring to in this text. But in the Greek text, it actually says, therefore, let us also lay aside the sin which clings so closely. You see, the writer doesn't appear to be talking about sin in a general sense, but rather in a specific sense. And, and I would suggest to you that the specific sin that he appears to be uh, dealing with is unbelief. The, the opposite of faith, which we've been looking at in chapter 11 and actually throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, unbelief has been the sin that the author has been addressing throughout this book. Let me just read to you from Hebrews 3.19. Hebrews 3.19. So we see that they, that is Israel, were unable to enter the, the promised land, right? Because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief, as the ESV puts it. You know, isn't it our unbelief that robs us of confidence in Christ? Isn't it unbelief that steals our joy and, and, and drains our strength even? It is faith in God that gives us that strength and that joy and that confidence. It gives us the ability to run the race. To live our lives with that end in view that we're heading somewhere that God has laid out this race for us if you are in a race focusing on the finish line and, and running to win it is going to change the way you think about obedience I, I, I we talked about this this week in the men's study and I, I wish I could tell you everything that we talked about but they were talking about the benefit of obedience and obedience doesn't mean we live life perfectly okay but, but obedience is also not just about being good or keeping random rules. Sometimes that's how we can think about obedience. But obedience really is part of helping you run the race that God has called you to run. And so when God tells you, forsake these sins and obey me, he's doing so because he wants us to have the ability to run the race. He doesn't want anything to, to, to hinder us. And so if unbelief is a sin that clings to us and so easily entangles us, then, then how do you fight the sin of unbelief? Well, uh, a couple ways. First of all, listen to the cloud of witnesses, but also look to Jesus. Um, let's look at this. Uh, in verse 1 it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now that word cloud is used to describe large groups of people in, in all kinds of classical literature. But the real question is, in what sense are the, the heroes of the faith surrounding Christians who come after them? Okay? Uh, in what sense are these Christians sort of surrounding us? Because the word translated witness can mean those who observe an event. If you go to a concert, you observe that event. Although we don't do that stuff anymore with COVID. But, you know, that's, that's sort of what it can mean to, to witness something. It can be to mean to be a spectator. And in this case, oftentimes people think of it as the spectators in a, a stadium that are watching these runners run. And we particularly get this idea because of that word surrounded. We're surrounded with the, these witnesses, okay? But the word witness can also mean something else. It can mean to testify about something, like in a court of law. To, to give your testimony about something, about something that's true. And, and I believe that, that this is what this verse is referring to, that sense of bearing testimony. 
and, and that the saints of old are testifying, they are speaking to us about who God is. And the reason I, I, I choose that particular translation is because the Greek word that's used for witness, uh, martus, from which we get the word martyr, is used like 35 times in the New Testament. And five of those times is in Hebrews 11 alone, the context to this passage today. And in each one of those five times, it refers to someone who gives testimony rather than to somebody who's merely observing an event. I mean, even in, in Hebrews 11.4, uh, if you look back there, we read, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He bears testimony. He gives his witness. Now, now the witnesses are, are, here again, are not spectating. They're speaking. But the question is, how do they speak to us? And, and the answer is that they speak to us through the pages of Scripture. That's what we see in the Bible. All, all these witnesses that the author refers to in, in chapter 11 bear witness to who God is and the work that he does amongst his people. And the accounts of, of these godly men and women are recorded, brothers and sisters, for our benefit. Uh, when you open the scriptures and you read of Abraham, do you know what it's really talking to you about? God. It's telling you who God is and, and how he relates to his people. David and Goliath. Uh, Daniel. I don't care. Pick the person you want to pick. Whoever it is. They're speaking to you and bearing witness to who God is and, and reminding you. And this is meant to be an encouragement to us. I mean, imagine if you would that you found out this week that you had to have brain surgery. And so, uh, you know, you begin to ask your friends to pray for you because you're going to have brain surgery. This is pretty major. And somebody comes up to you and says, Oh, well, I just want you to know I'm going to be out in the waiting room cheering you on as you're in having surgery. And you might think, Okay, that's nice. That's, that's okay. But wouldn't you rather have someone who would come to you and would bear witness and testify and say, Hey, guess what? I actually had to have brain surgery a year ago. And, and I actually had the same doctor that you had. Let me tell you about your doctor. Let, let, me, let me tell you about his experience and how good he was and how gentle and thorough he was and, and, and his incredible success rate in doing his surgery. I mean, we all would take much greater comfort in that person than the person who just says, hey, rah, 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 I'm here to cheer you on. And, and that's what's going on in... Uh, to encourage us here in Scripture. And it's what's happening with this great cloud of witnesses. They're talking about God. They're telling us about His sovereignty and His goodness and the fact that He's all-wise and all-knowing, that He's fully trustworthy. And we need to be reminded that God is faithful to His promises. And we need to hear about people like Gideon and, and, and uh, who was weak and wanted to run and hide, and yet God used him in a mighty way to accomplish his purposes. We need to read of lustful Samson, who was a womanizer, and yet God used him, as weak as he was, to accomplish his purpose as he trusted the Lord. Because, brothers and sisters, that's where we're at, are we not? That's what we struggle with. We're fallen people, and God uses fallen people to do his will, and that's what we need to hear as we run the race. We need to be reminded of who God is and, and, and how he works, even through and perfect people because our focus needs to be on Him, not on our abilities or even our inabilities. God is doing a work 
in us, brothers and sisters. Jesus is advancing His sovereign cause in the world today through you, the church. He is, uh, with boundless power and limitless grace, uh, we have become part of His grand story. And so we, we battle unbelief by listening to the testimony of the saints as recorded in God's Word. But we also, and most importantly, we do so by looking to Jesus. That's the most important. Some translations say, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's a, that's a good idea. Because when you say, look to Jesus, you might just think, glance. But this is really more of a fixed focus upon Jesus Christ. And, and at the end of the day, the greatest weapon we have against unbelief is a fixed gaze upon the worst person of Jesus Christ. That's really what this whole book is about, is to fix our eyes upon Jesus, is to look to Him, to see that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to who? Jesus. J.C. Ryle says, it's no exaggeration to say that Christianity is Christ. That Christianity is Christ. It's not a religion. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a culture. It's not a worldview. It is Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says, For to me to live is what? Christ. And to die is, is gain. Uh, what we're called to look to is, is a person. Not just a doctrine, not an abstract theological dogma, but a living person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the point behind all the doctrine and the teaching is, is so that you will see the person, Jesus. And so you will know Him and love Him and serve Him. And so the author gives us several things that he wants us to see about Jesus. And I'm just going to cover these very quickly, okay? Many of these you've heard before, but I want to talk about who Jesus is, what He's done, and where He is. Who He is, what He's done, and where He is. First of all, who He is. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now the word founder there means uh, architect, it means designer, it means builder, it's the, one, the originator. And so Jesus is the one that gives us our faith. And He's the one that originates that. But He's also going to be the one to perfect us. So that you see sort of these bookends that Jesus is the one that, that keeps us firm in, in our faith. But um, there's really also the idea here that, that of someone who is a champion and who has accomplished a great victory. And that great victory has led others into the result of their conquest. Okay, what a, an example of this would be David and Goliath. When David killed Goliath, what did he do next? They say, okay, that's it. I've done my job. I need to get back to the sheep. No. When, when Goliath fell, David led the charge and the Israelites went and what? Conquered the Philistines. They destroyed their enemies because of what their champion, what their victor had done. And, and, and that's what Christ has done for us as His people. He came in our place and He fought sin and death and the devil and, and emerged triumphantly, brothers and sisters, leading you and I into victory in Christ. And so Paul could say in Romans 8.37, we are what? More than conquerors through Him who loved us. Brothers and sisters, you can run the race of the Christian life um, or I should say, as you run the race of the Christian life, you're not merely struggling in hopes to make it happen. You're not just barely hanging in the race, or God, I just hope you can keep me there till the end. As a Christian 
who is looking to Jesus. And let me add that clarification. As a Christian who's looking to Jesus, this doesn't automatically happen. Okay, but as we are looking to Jesus, you are more than conquerors through Him as you look and you put your faith and you trust in Him. Because as, as Paul tells us, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus will establish you as you look to Him. Brothers and sisters, that ought to even cause Presbyterians to say, Praise the Lord! Right? Praise the Lord for Jesus, who has done a mighty work for us. But what has Jesus done? It says, Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, do you know what the joy that was that was set before Jesus it, it was the joy of glorifying His Father by redeeming sinners, by redeeming you and me who, who were sinners. Jesus glorifying the Father by accomplishing God's loving purpose to rescue sinners from death and hell and to make them His adopted children. That's what Jesus did. That was the joy that He had to accomplish that for His fathers. These are things that are so precious to Jesus. As a matter of fact, he went to the cross, it tells us, despising the shame. Okay? Whenever you and I are shamed by someone, we sort of cower, don't we? That shame sort of gets the best of us. But, but here, it, we read that the shame of the cross was not enough to turn Jesus away. He despised that shame. He just went forward, and he went ahead, and he, he uh, fulfilled the Father's will. Instead, Jesus endured the cross to be a sacrifice for him. Jesus did not die on the cross as a victim, but as a son who loved his father. Jesus died on the cross as a warrior, defeating his enemies. And so when Jesus says, it is finished, it was. Redemption was accomplished for us. And as we run the race, we must remember what Jesus has done for us. Because it is in that reality, brothers and sisters, that you are going to live this next week. It is in that reality of what Christ has done and His great power that you are going to be able to run the race this next week with your eyes uh, ahead of the goal, with your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Now this is what Jesus has accomplished, so let us look to Him. And, and, uh, and uh, we also need to understand where He is. We read, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we've, we've talked about this a lot in the book of Hebrews, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But here, again, as I said before, Jesus' work on the cross was not the only work he did. When he, when he finished his work on the cross, it was finished, but his work continues even to this day as he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is our sympathizing high priest uh, who is at God's right hand. And what's he doing? What's Jesus doing? He's praying. He's praying for His church. He's praying for you and me. And, and He's reigning with all the power and authority uh, for you uh, as, as we set forth and as we run this race. He is praying for us and He is exerting His power and His um, authority for our sake. And so we have a King who has not only given us life, but He has done so to glorify His Father. And so what can separate us from the love of God, brothers and sisters? Even as we run the race, even as we in, endure pain and difficulties and trials, as we feel very weak, as we're like, God, what is going on? And we don't always understand. We can rest in Him. 
Because there is nothing that can separate us from the love of the one who has died for us and who now sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns on the behalf of his church. What could overwhelm you in this journey of the Christian life? And the answer is, is if your eyes are on Jesus, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because Jesus is sufficient. Now, how, how do you look to Jesus? I just want to close with this. Brothers and sisters, this idea of looking to Jesus is not just simply a doctrine to believe. If you walk out these doors and you go and say, oh yeah, we're supposed to look to Jesus, and then you never think about it again, you've totally missed what the author is trying to say. He says, let us, you and me, look to Jesus. It, it is a practice. It is a habit. It is something we do. It's something that happens even here on Sunday mornings as we gather to worship. When we come and we open the Word of God together, we are looking to Jesus, brothers and sisters. When, when we celebrate the sacraments, we are, we are looking to Jesus. Uh, when we encourage one another in Christian fellowship, and I'm not just talking about standing around and talking afterwards. It may or may not happen then. But when we are encouraging, building one another up, encouraging, loving one another, and doing these things, we are looking to Jesus. And these are habits to be formed. I, I know that you, you don't feel like coming to church every Sunday. I'll, I'll be honest with you. There's times I don't feel like coming to church on Sunday. I hate to admit that, but you know, that sometimes is, is the case. I think that's our, our human weakness. And so why do we do it? Well, there's a lot of reasons why we do it. But, but part of that is because we are forming holy habits. Knowing that God uses those habits to transform us and to strengthen us in our faith as we keep our eyes upon Jesus. Why do you have family worship in your homes? Because you feel like doing it? Well, some days you may feel like doing it. Other days, not so much so. But as you open the Word together as a family, you're, you're looking to Jesus. And, and, and parents, those of you that have kids, you're also leading your children to see who Jesus is and what He's done. And God uses these things to transform us. Brothers and sisters, it happens in small group Bible studies. It, it happens in your time alone with the Lord each morning as you get up and you spend time in His Word and prayer and fellowship with Him or, or, or every evening before you go to bed, whenever it is that you do that. Whenever, maybe you take times during the day, maybe you're memorizing Scripture. And so you take time throughout the day to meditate upon the Word of God in the middle of the day. And as you do so, you're looking to Jesus. It's a lifestyle of actually looking to Jesus, looking and abiding in Jesus by faith, battling uh, unbelief and faith, living in the pain and the heartache of life by faith. Then, brothers and sisters, one day we will die in faith. We will die in faith, waking to see Him face to face. I don't know if you think about that that much. I know you're a pretty young congregation. So you may not think of death. Some of us are a little farther down the road, so maybe we think about it a little bit more. But the reality is, is one day we will close our eyes, we'll be in this race, we'll be enduring. It's an agonizing race, and yet a glorious race. But one day all that will be laid aside, and we will close our eyes in death and open them. And we will see... We will see our Savior's face. It reminds me of Psalm 17, verse 15, where the psalmist says, As for me, 
I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Can you imagine that? That's where we're headed. One day the race will be over and we will be home. But until then, let us continue to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Please, bow with me if you will. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to this race. We know as we come this morning that we don't deserve it. And you could have left us just running our lives on our own terms, heading towards eternal destruction, never knowing the loving kindness of Jesus, never having the deep hope and, and confidence, knowing one day that, that we will see you face to face. Father, you know where each one of us are this morning. Now we ask that, that you would take your word and that you would drive it deep into our hearts. Uh, may, maybe there are decisions that we will have to make about our time and, and, and uh, maybe our giving, uh, where our hearts are, where our minds are. Uh, maybe there needs to be a refocus of uh, some new habits that, that need to be formed. Lord, maybe there are some weights that need to be set aside, uh, sins of unbelief that needs to be battled. Father, we pray uh, that you would help us in our weakness. Uh, help us, oh God, as we make these decisions. God, give us strength, Lord, to, to obey you and to honor you in all that we do. And that by your grace, we would take steps so that we could see Jesus by faith, looking to him. Father, I also pray for those this morning who don't know Jesus. I pray that the beauty of this Savior who loved us this way would compel them to seek him. And in seeking him, that they would find him. Because, Lord, that's what you promise, that if we seek, we will find. So, Lord, may that please be the case. We pray in your name. Amen.